Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the assembly rooms in Bath. This is another frequently requested topic that we are covering this week. So we are headed back to Bath. For this discussion of both the upper and lower assembly rooms in Bath, we are going to start by taking a look at Northanger Abbey. Catherine has arrived in Bath with the Allens. She's had a little mini makeover and <laughs> she's ready to go mix and mingle. Cue the montage. Mm -hmm. And this is from the text. The important evening came, which was to usher her into the upper rooms. Her hair was cut and dressed by the best hand, her clothes put on with care, and both Mrs. Allen and her maid declared she looked quite as she should do. With such encouragement, Catherine hoped at least to pass uncensured through the crowd. And so that's the reference to the upper rooms. And then in the next chapter, we go to the lower rooms. So here again is from the book. They made their appearance in the lower rooms, and here fortune was more favorable to our heroine. The master of ceremonies introduced her to a very gentlemanlike young man as a partner. His name was Tilney. He seemed to be about four or five and twenty, was rather tall, had pleasing countenance, a very intelligent and lively eye, and, if not quite handsome, was very near it. His address was good, and Catherine felt herself in high luck. A much better showing than <laughs> the upper rooms. Ugh. And Tilney, that little twinkle in his eye, right? <laughs> it's quite an alluring moment. This magic moment. <laughs> yes, yes. Assembly rooms were used across Britain in the 18th century and the early 19th century as any set of rooms intended primarily for social gatherings. And as we mentioned in our episode on the Meriton Assembly, we have our favorite definition of assemblies during this period, from Ephraim Chambers, who describes them as, quote, a stated and general meeting of the polite persons of both sexes for the sake of conversation, gallantry, news, and play. And since we are returning to Historic Bath, you know we have to reference a guidebook from the period. So today, you get to hear from The New Bath Guide, or Useful Pocket Companion, for all persons residing at or resorting to this ancient city, which was published in 1791. I mean, you might be residing in, or you might be <laughs> resorting to, you know, we have to cover everything. Cover all the bases, all the persons who might be interested in our pocket companion. So according to the new bath guide, quote, there are two sets of assembly rooms in this city. These, the lower rooms, kept by Mr. James Heaven, on the walks leading from the grove to the parades, and the new rooms east of the circus, kept by Messrs. Durham and Stroud. So here in that quote, these means these are the examples of the assembly rooms. And the guide refers to the new rooms, which is another way of referring to the upper rooms. So the upper and lower assembly rooms were really central sites for sociability both day and night. And during the evening particularly, they generally become more formal spaces for balls with specific rules and expectations. 
one had to subscribe to the assembly rooms in order to have regular access to the entertainment there. There was also a set schedule for the evening events held in the rooms. Again, the new bath guide fills us in. So here we get from the guide. There are two dress balls every week, V's on Monday at the new rooms, and on Friday at the lower rooms. The subscription, one guinea to each room for which each subscriber has three tickets. There are also two cotillion balls every week, V's at the lower rooms on Tuesday and at the new rooms on Thursday. Subscription, half a guinea ticket, not transferable. And eight concerts in the winter at the new rooms on Wednesday. Gentlemen's subscription, one guinea and a half. And ladies, one guinea. The tickets transferable. Non-subscribers to the cotillion and concert pay five shillings. So we've got the whole schedule for the whole year laid out and in kind of clear terms here with our with our fees and everything. There is a lot of symbiosis in this kind of scheduling signaling that the upper and lower rooms coexisted pretty effectively for a time. For the purposes of this episode, however, we'll discuss these assembly rooms separately. First, the lower rooms, then the upper rooms. So, you know, get ready. (laughs) Buckle in. (laughs) The lower assembly rooms, or the Harrison assembly rooms as they were initially known, were the first assembly rooms built in Bath in 1708. Thomas Harrison, the owner, was encouraged by Richard Bow Nash to build the rooms as a profitable speculation. Nash is arguably most famous for presiding over these assembly rooms, starting with the opening of the rooms in 1709 until his death in 1761. He is also largely responsible for setting up many of the rules and structures that dominated Bath Society assemblies for nearly a century. The lower rooms were built on the Grand Parade with lovely views of what was originally called Harrison's Walks, a formal garden bordering the River Avon. These are now called the Parade Gardens. The lower rooms no longer exist, sadly. The building was nearly destroyed by fire in 1820. It was rebuilt as the Royal Literary Institution shortly thereafter, but the building was demolished in 1933. There is, however, still a plaque marking the space on the parapet above the parade gardens. The lower rooms were located fairly close to the abbey and the pump room and the Roman baths for which the city was named. As a result, during the day, the lower rooms were a popular location for socializing and promenading. And according to Paula Byrne's article, The Unmeaning Luxuries of Bath, urban pleasures in Jane Austen's world. Quote, It was the fashion, also, for the company to invite each other to breakfast at the lower rooms after taking their early baths or first glass of spa water. Gotta get the taste out of your mouth Mm -hmm. with some lovely breakfast. (laughs) Most refreshing way to start the day. According to the new bath guide, the ballroom was, quote, 90 feet in length, 36 in breadth, and 34 in height with a very fine stucco ceiling. The view of the river valley and adjacent hills makes it one of the pleasantest morning rooms in the kingdom. There is in it a portrait of the late Richard Nash Esquire, and it is elegantly furnished with chandeliers, girandoles, and etc. The card room is 60 feet long and 30 feet wide, 
with a coved ceiling and has in it another portrait of Mr. Nash. There are also two tea rooms, 40 feet by 24 each. Mr. Nash, just really making sure he's looking down. He's just everywhere. He's supervising, making sure everybody's still following all the rules. (laughs) The all-seeing Mr. Nash. So during the evening, these rooms were a place for dancing, obviously, and they were presided over by a master of ceremonies. You know, Nash on the wall. But uh, when Catherine and Henry Tilney attend, the master of ceremonies was James King, and he presided from 1785 until 1805, when he became the MC of the upper rooms. King's rules for the lower assemblies were pretty rigid and largely in keeping with Nash's precedent. I mean, how could you not? His portrait is literally looking down on you. (laughs) Looming over you constantly. (laughs) There were 10 specific rules posted in 1787. We won't read them all today, but here are a few choice bits. That the seats at the upper end of the room be reserved for peeresses and foreign ladies of distinction. Lady Dalrymple is like, that is mine. Thank you very (laughs) much. So here is another rule from the lower rooms. That as the subscription balls end precisely at 11, the company do assemble as soon as possible after six o'clock. So we've got like our, our opening hours and our closing hours. And this is quite early evening wrap up for this kind of society event. This was initially one of Nash's rules. And he argued that since... Bath was a spa town with many people coming with illnesses and maladies that we should all get them to bed early. I mean, I'm on board with this whole like... Right, early bedtime. I'm yeah. in. Yes. <laughs> yes. And this deadline of 11 was very rigidly kept. They would cut off mid-dance if need be, <laughs> and people would be ushered out immediately. So it was even a little bit of a, of a running joke. You know? Yeah. Like, just like, you know, no more dancing, not a step more. Like out the door as you go. Very Cinderella. You know, the clock is chiming. You've got to (laughs) leave. We've got a bedtime to keep. And then we also have this rule as regards appropriate dress. That ladies who dance minuets be in full dress with lappets. Gentlemen also in full dress. Those of the army or navy are considered very properly dressed when in uniform with their hair on cue. Pulled back and looking very dapper. Mm hmm. (laughs) So for a little bit more context on what's being referenced here, we turn to Alison Thompson's article, The Rules of the Assembly, Dancing at Bath and Other Spas in the 18th Century. So according to Thompson, quote, an evening at either the lower or upper rooms at Bath prior to about 1800 began with the minuets, a dance for only two persons at a time, and one that engendered tremendous social anxiety even sensations of, quote, terror, as one performed surrounded by 500 or more critical spectators. So they're just watching you dance as you kind of minuet around. She continues, those who wished to display their talents in the minuet applied to the master of ceremonies, who arranged partners by rank and suitability. Ladies were required to wear the enormous hoops that formed court dress, as well as lappets, streamers of lace on the head. Yeah, I'm good. I'll sit this one out. (laughs) You know, I don't, I'm fine. Yeah, no, thank you. (laughs) I will make sure to arrive at the assembly after this dance is done. Yes, me as well. Yeah, no, thank you. (laughs) 
So one last rule from the lower rooms that we want to share, that ladies and gentlemen coming to town give orders that their names and places of abode be entered in any of the pump room books. And the master of ceremonies thus publicly requests the favor of such ladies and gentlemen to whom he has not the honor of being personally known to offer him some favorable occasion of being presented to them that he be enabled to show that attention which is not more his duty than his inclination to observe i publicly request this favor oh my goodness this last rule contextualizes the way catherine and tilney meet so the mc's primary job apart from maintaining order at the assemblies, was to make introductions between ladies and gentlemen who had not met formally so that they might dance with propriety at the balls regularly held there. He's a little little matchmaker, you know? So true. I hadn't thought of that in that specific way. But of course, with Henry and Catherine, that's 100% what he does. And this also explains, this, this rule here explains why later in the novel, when Catherine channels her inner sleuth, to find out if Tilney is still in Bath, she consults the book at the pump room. So this is from the text. He was nowhere to be met with. Every search for him was equally unsuccessful in morning lounges or evening assemblies, neither at the upper nor lower rooms, at dressed or undressed balls was he perceivable, nor among the walkers, the horsemen, or the curricle drivers of the morning. His name was not in the pump room book. And curiosity could do no more. He must be gone from Bath. <laughs> Case closed. He's not in the pump room book. You could just feel her agitation, though. Like, where, where did he go? Where did he go? Right. And if this is the Cinderella scenario, Tilney is the Cinderella here. And yeah, she's exactly. like, she's like, I am trying to find you, sir. Mm -hmm. The role of the MC in making introductions also meant that people were mixing more freely with one another. And Bath in general was sort of the place that these types of encounters, you know, like what we see happen here with Catherine and Tilney, we see more of this happening in a place like Bath. As Maxine Berg points out in her book, Luxury and Pleasure in 18th Century Britain, quote, the thing about these new resorts was that they were not London. They were places of holiday, not work, of more relaxed sociability than London or county society. And they were smaller, making encounters across social groups and the sexes easier. They were immensely popular, not just with the elite, but with the middling classes. So now we're going to turn our attention to the upper rooms, also known as the new assembly rooms. These rooms were built between 1769 to 1771 by John Wood the Younger. And this was part of the larger renovations and building phases of the Georgian era, which were headed by John Wood the Elder. So father and son duo here. The rooms were built in the neoclassical style that is really an architectural trademark of the city. They are very near the circus, which is a landmark ring of houses also built during this period. After the opening in 1771, the rooms became one of the most influential gathering spaces in Bath. Maggie Lane in A Charming Place, Bath in the Life and Novels of Jane Austen, points out that the lower rooms, quote, were well situated at the time they were built, being in the most public part of the old town. But, and she continues, as the fashionable center of gravity was drawn by the expansion of the town up the northern slopes, these rooms were found inconvenient by many visitors. 
So the upper rooms were built in part for the residents of the more newly developed part of town. You know, that's where things were starting to happen. And so then Lane continues, Not surprisingly, there was considerable rivalry between the two sets of rooms, yet by offering attractions on alternate evenings, both managed to keep in business well into the 19th century. So again, seeing that kind of schedule that we were talking about earlier, yes. where a little bit of coordination here to make sure we're not stepping on each other's toes. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a delicate balance, but, they, but it works for a while. And they're like, okay, we can, we can make this work. According to Pamela Kingsbury, the upper rooms were, quote, the most elegant of all spa assembly rooms. And she's talking about like, in general, the building itself is essentially U-shaped in terms of the interior. So the entrance forms the central or interior part of the U. After walking through the entrance's portico, one comes into a central octagonal room from which one can move to the ballroom, if you go to the left, to the tea room on the right, or the grand octagon room, which is straightforward and designated as a card room. Paula Byrne points out that, quote, the open plan architecture was deliberate. The rooms were built in a roughly circular fashion to encourage the free flow of guests. And this flowing design made it easier to use the rooms during the day as well as the evening. So both the tea rooms and octagon were essentially multi-purpose rooms. A good multi-purpose classroom, if you will. Yes. <laughs> and the tea room, for example, was sometimes used as a card room as described by the new bath guide. The ballroom is 105 feet, 8 inches long, 42 feet, 8 inches wide, and 42 feet, 6 inches high. The two card rooms are one, an octagon of 48 feet diameter, the other 70 feet long and 27 feet wide. I love that these guidebooks of the time were like, let me give you the measurements for the rooms. All of the measurements. <laughs> like so that you can like envision this, because I, I got to tell you. You start talking numbers and dimensions to me. I'm like, um, sure. Sounds big. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> sure. If you say so. <laughs> exactly. I just imagine like going on to Yelp and reading a restaurant review and it's like the that dining room gives you room the dimensions was... of the space. <laughs> yes. You're like, this is really going to inform my dining decisions tonight. Mm -hmm. So the octagon room was also used as kind of a gathering space during the day. Byrne points out that, quote, it is in the octagon room that Catherine Moreland and Isabella Thorpe arranged to meet their brothers for a rendezvous. And this room is also the setting for the scene between Anne Elliot and Captain Wentworth, when Anne allows herself to hope that he still loves her. A moment. Byrne is referring here to the evening when the Elliots and Dalrymples attend a concert in the tea rooms. So this is from Persuasion. Sir Walter, his two daughters, and Mrs. Clay were the earliest of all their party, at the rooms in the evening. And, as Lady Dalrymple must be waited for, <laughs> they took their station by one of the fires in the octagon room. But hardly were they so settled when the door opened again and Captain Wentworth walked in alone. In my mind, I have decided that this scene in the book is basically like the one in Lord of the Rings, when Aragorn, dripping wet, pushes open the doors to Helm's Deep, and Eowyn nearly swoons. Um, so just replace, you know, Aragorn with Wentworth, Eowyn with Anne, and I'm pretty sure that's how things went down in this scene. This might have actually been Tolkien's source material. I just, you know. I will 
never be able to see that scene in that movie and not think of i'll be overlaying (laughs) persuasion now what a moment what a moment it's important it's a very important Uh, way of interpreting the scene The rules at the upper rooms were very similar to those at the lower rooms, but there were some differences worth mentioning. The MC at the upper rooms from 1785 to 1805 was Richard Tyson, and he had even more particular rules about dress for the minuet. I bet you didn't think that was possible. (laughs) Specifically calling out pocket hoops for women's dresses that were apparently too small to be appropriate for the solemnity of the occasion. So only the giant hoops here, okay? Have some respect for the minuet. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes. There were also, also some specific rules about how to access the tea room. One's subscription to the rooms did not cover the price of tea on public nights. Instead, quote, the tea on public nights may be paid for by every person respectively coming into the rooms. Each lady and gentleman are to pay sixpence on their admission at the outer door, which will entitle them to tea. So very, very, very rigid, you know, protect the tea, basically. Yes. (laughs) And perhaps the most interesting variation on the rules is about introductions to the MC. Okay, here we go. (laughs) That, as the late great extension of the city of Bath puts it out of the power of the master of the ceremonies to be regularly informed of the several persons who arrive here. He hopes they will be so indulgent to him as not to charge him with want of attention. And as it is his wish that all improper company should be kept from these rooms, (laughs) he thus publicly requests that all strangers, as well ladies as gentlemen, will desire some person of known reputation to introduce them to him before they hold themselves entitled to that respect, which he is ambitious and ever will be studious to show to every individual reporting to this place. So he's like, listen, okay, Bath has gotten so popular. The city's getting bigger and bigger. There's too many of you. (laughs) So I'm going to need you to sort of like introduce yourself to me first before I can go about introducing you to other people. Yeah. And like, don't just like walk up to me on the street. Like mm-hmm. you have to have someone of proper reputation to yes. introduce you. Like, yes. like you have to be introduced formally to the MC before he can formally introduce you to anyone else. Like this is, yeah, he's got some big ideas about how this needs yeah. to be done. It's like your introduction to him needs to be sponsored first before then he will sponsor your introduction to other people. He has to make sure that the hoops aren't too small, obviously. <laughs> he's uh, he's like. A very posh bouncer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> well, and this, and this rule kind of puts into context a little bit about how crowded the upper rooms were. And this is kind of depicted in Catherine's first ball at Bath and how Mrs. Allen knows no one. The MC doesn't make an appearance in the scene. And it's clear that the upper rooms just were too, like, there was too much crowd control going on. That, like, he, he's not even able to manage this. So if you don't have connections, It might not be easy to navigate the space. It's a situation where it's both like so popular and there are so many people in Bath that the rooms are crowded. And at the same time, you can't get the formal introductions that you need so that you can actually have a good time. You're just kind of like standing there like, well, we don't really know anyone. Okay. The system's a little bit, has some jagged edges, Mm -hmm. you know, here. (laughs) 
So when Austin describes Catherine's experience at the upper assembly rooms, particularly, we are able to get a sense of the rules and the designated spaces. So first, they are late to the ball, which, you know, missed that minuet. Shucks. What a shame. (laughs) Then once they arrive, Mr. Allen heads directly to the card room, which would have been a place that only the men would gather. It's like a little mini gentleman's club inside of the assembly room. He leaves the ladies to find their way into the ballroom, where they have to crush along the walls to try to get to a space where they can even view the dancing. So Mm -hmm. already, this is not a party I would Mm -hmm. ever want to go to. No, no. And then they have to shuffle their way to the tea room, and that is also a bit of a crush. And the whole time they are there, Catherine doesn't get to dance, just barely gets some tea at the end. Yeah. It's just a bit devastating when Mr. Allen rejoins them and is like, so Catherine, did you enjoy your fall? And she's kind of like, yeah, it was great. It's like super fun. Thank -hmm. you for asking. Yeah. And then, of course, at the lower rooms, she has a much more successful evening, largely because of the MC. So Mr. King, who Henry mentions by name, is the one who introduces the couple, which would be standard protocol. And from there, they are able to have a chance to talk with each other over tea. And Catherine has an opportunity to get to know him in this context. And that and that would have been a very likely scenario. So you get a good feel for it, I think, in that regard. It is different, though, in the adaptation of Northanger Abbey. We have these two separate balls at the upper and lower rooms in the book. But in the, in the film, they collapse those into a single ball, which, you know, makes sense. But so in that scene, Catherine and Mrs. Allen are initially having a gloomy time, which is what we have described at the upper rooms. But then Mr. Tilney accidentally bumps into Mrs. Allen. And after a very quick exchange about muslin, you know, wink nudge, this is amazing. (laughs) He knows his muslins. Then he goes to fetch the MC, And they specifically mention that, ooh, this is Mr. King. And he makes that formal introduction. So it's a mashup of the two scenes, but it works for the film, I think. Plus, it fits more with our expectations of romance as a genre. You know, we're getting this adorable meet cute in this context. Yeah. 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 Bumped into each other. Cute exchange about muslin. Yeah. And you have a charming anecdote to tell the kids later on in life. (laughs) Which is important, really. Mm -hmm. You know, still all very charming in the book. And obviously, Catherine is just completely swept away. Oh, yeah. She she is a goner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She's, She's okay with the way that this went down, for sure. Well, if you have ever had an adorable meet cute or... A, a charming time at a public assembly, anything along those lines, <laughs> you can tell us all about it by reaching out to us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode where we will be talking about Frank's haircut. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.